What a wonderful morning, and it has just been so great. I'm so thrilled that we're back in one unified expression of worship together. It is just the best of who we are when we are all gathered and worshiping the Lord with each other, and I'm just, I'm just so thrilled about this morning. And what a wonderful hearing Emily's story and how God has worked in such a transformative way in her life. And just a reminder, as Adam shared, we are all shares of the same story, lives that have been wrecked by sin, but so thankful for the redeeming work of Christ that gives us hope. Well, as we think about Jesus, rightly, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to continue our walk through John's gospel, beginning in verse 17 this morning. John chapter 11, we have left the opening 10 chapters, which is a book of signs. We are now entering into a time in which we will read the latter part of John's gospel, a book of glory focused on the finished work of Jesus and what he accomplished when he suffered and died on a cross for us and was raised from the dead. And we're in the transition of those two as we come to this section of John chapter 11. I will always remember the sequence of events that happened on this weekend 21 years ago. On this weekend, 21 years ago, the Saturday of that weekend was the day that I proposed to Allie, and I'm still amazed that she said yes, and that was just how the weekend started. It was also the weekend that I preached for the first time in the pulpit of the Highland Park First Baptist Church. It was not my first sermon, though I was still young in the ministry. I'd gotten a call that week asking if I was available to preach because the pastor had left in an abrupt way when I got to the church, and I went back to the pastor's study. His belongings were still in the study, his diplomas on the wall, and it was a very interesting day. And I stood up and preached that day. It was a great time. I'm not saying it was a great sermon. It was just an affirming time for me. I knew that it was just a sweet time of worship. I got to introduce my new fiance to a group of people for the first time. It was wonderful. And as Allie and I left the parking lot, I commented to her that that just felt right. It just felt like we were at home. It was a few months later that it became home for us. And about 10 months later, six weeks before I was married, they called me to be their pastor. I got to serve those people, those wonderful folks, for 10 great years, a little longer than that actually. And it was just tremendous. Well, and I think back on those days, Allie and I were so young. What was it that allowed us to be at the same church, the First church I got to serve as pastor for as long as God allowed us to be there. And really, I think what God did was pretty amazing, though it came about through a lot of shed tears. God united my heart with the church largely because of the suffering that we entered into and walked beside the people while we were there. I'll always remember a friend that I made early in that ministry. He wasn't there at the very beginning. He came about a year into my pastorate. He was a precious man by the name of Jim Sanders, and he became a fast friend to me for a variety of reasons. Jim was godly. He loved sharing the gospel. He was a passionate Gideon, would share a copy of God's Word with whomever he could. 
I love Jim because Jim Sanders was a man who told corny jokes. And if you've been here more than once, you know that must be something I'm drawn to, something of which I share in common with Jim. And I love Jim for a variety of reasons. And the best part of Jim was that he had a precious wife whose name was Jewel, whose name lived true to her character and who she was. And I love the joy of getting to serve in a church in which Jim and Jewel became members. And, and it did not take long for Jim to find a place. He jumped in, as did Jewel, with both feet. We quickly made him a deacon in that church. And I loved how he would often be there at deacons' meetings, just sharing and loving and praying and occasionally weaving in one of those cheesy jokes I'm telling you about. Well, I loved Jim. But I was heartbroken for him when I learned that his, that his brother had died unexpectedly. And it was a Sunday. It was the day of the viewing at the funeral home. After finishing up at church that night, we still had church on Sunday nights there, I left there, and Allie and I wait, made our way over to the funeral home where his brother was being viewed, and sure enough, Jim was there. I greeted him. I was there with he and Jewel. I remember us praying together, and I'll never forget before I left, shaking his hand. I said goodbye. I promised I would see him the next day. A couple of hours later, I got a phone call. Jim and Jewel barely made it out of the parking lot. They did not see an oncoming truck. And in the call that I received, I was trying to make sense of, I was absolutely stunned, as you always are when you get those calls. I was informed that Jim did not survive, but that Jewel did. That she did not know that her husband had died in the accident. I had about 30 minutes to gather myself to be the one to go to the emergency room at UofL Hospital where they always sent triage patients, and I had to find the nerve and the words to tell Jewel that her husband did not live. I had 30 minutes to figure out what I was going to say. Those 30 minutes in the car were invaluable time of prayer before the Lord as I was trying to figure it out. How in the world would I even address them? I had 30 minutes that day. When you come to John chapter 11 and read in verses 17 and following, Jesus encountered a time of equally awful tragedy and he had about a two-day journey to ready himself to face Martha and Mary in the face of Lazarus's death. And when you read about the love that Jesus had for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus, he loved these three siblings and loved them fiercely. So much so that he loved them so much that when he learned of Lazarus's life being threatened with a deadly illness, he stayed where he was for an additional two more days. Now, when you read of that detail, you find it to be a bit conflicting. We learn in John chapter 11, verse 4, that at the same, that, that when Jesus learned of Lazarus and what was happening to him and his illness, he says in chapter 11, verse 4, that this is not an illness that would lead to death. 
that God was going to use this circumstance to bring glory to God. But then, as the story progresses, Lazarus does not get better. Lazarus does die. Jesus explains to those who are with him, his disciples, he's glad that he was not there in Bethany when his friend died because it gave the opportunity for a display of the power of God so that the disciples would believe. But the fact still remained that Jesus was not physically there in Bethany. If you think about those days, of Lazarus's life eking, being e- seeping away from him. Can't you just imagine Martha every time the door opened expecting Jesus to walk through the threshold? Can't you just imagine Mary? How often it probably was voiced from her lips, "Where is Jesus? When is he going to arrive?" And if Lazarus was cognitively aware of his condition worsening didn't you just can't you just expect that Lazarus was there trying to discern the voices that were around him hoping to hear the familiar tone the voice of Christ but he never walked through the doorway Mary's question was never answered the way she expected and Lazarus never heard Jesus's voice. Read with me verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had seen him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. And in his spirit, in his spirit was greatly troubled and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? When Jesus made it to Bethany, he he steps into a scene of deep mourning. Four days had passed since Lazarus had died. And the way that these friends of Jesus are described in the Gospels, it, whenever you read about this family, they seem to be a family of notable financial means. And apparently, as we read of all who had journeyed the two miles from Jerusalem to Bethany to be with Martha and to be with Mary on the occasion of Lazarus's death, all that had gone to them so they could express love to them. Apparently, this family was not just of financial means, they were of relational means too. These friends of theirs who lived Two miles away, they did what friends ought to do in times of grief. They made the trip. When Martha learned that Jesus had been seen, that he was making his way toward the city, even before he got to the village, she got up and she left Mary there at the house and she went looking for Jesus. And I'm sure... You may have seen the bracelets at times over the years that my girls occasionally wear, the bracelets with the word, with the letters WWJD inscribed on them. I think of that bracelet when I come to verse 21 and I'm considering what Jesus is going to tell his grieving friend, what will Jesus do in the face of this tragedy? And what we learn from Christ is something that I think we all ought to learn because here's the promise. We are going through, going to go through times of suffering. And what we learn from this text is that every believer can learn from Jesus what to do when faced with immense suffering. The first thing we learn about is Jesus engages Martha is this, that we should combat suffering with the truth. I do think that when we read of Martha's first words to Jesus, we need to be careful and not read too much more in these words that are there. She asks the question of Jesus, Lord, if you had been there. And when she does, I don't think she's doing so accusing Jesus of not caring for her or having not met, met the need and have responded in a timely way. She begins by saying the word Lord, addressing him and acknowledging that Jesus is not only her friend, but he's also her master. And when she says, if you had been here, I don't think these are words of rebuke. What she is saying is voicing from her heart words of sincere grief intermingled with faith. She had been there when her brother was dying. And she is confessing belief that had Jesus been there, he would have healed him. And when you read verse 22, and you see the confidence 
that she has in Jesus and that that confidence is not shaken in the least. She says, whatever you ask of the Lord, I know will happen. It's because she knows that Jesus enjoys, in the words of D.A. Carson, unprecedented fruitfulness to his prayers. Martha knows that this is unique. It sets him apart. It's unlike anyone else she had ever met because of who he is. And Jesus, the one who ultimately was responsible for creating Martha and sculpting her heart, he's the one who knows just what to say to speak directly into her situation and into her heart. And what he says next is meant to be taken in two ways. Martha gets one of these ways correct, but she misses the other, so Jesus has to make it clear for her. She gets that death is not going to have the last word in response to her brother. And that is made clear in her affirmation. Yes, Lord, I know, I trust, I'm glad that ultimately my brother is going to rise again on the last day. And this truth, this promise, that death does not have the final word, isn't that a wonderful truth? It's what we declare So often at funerals, when we say goodbye to those that we love, that even if we could have them back, we know we wouldn't want them to come back because they're with Jesus. It's glorious. The resurrection happens for them, and that is a promise of what will take place on that last day. She gets that. I'm glad she does. This is a wonderful truth. Maybe this is all that Jesus meant when he says in chapter 11, verse 4, it's not Lazarus' about Lazarus's illness, that that illness is not going to be the type of illness that's going to lead to death, but that he will be given resurrection life, victory over death in the last day. But I don't think that's all that Jesus means in verse 4 of chapter 11, and I know that's not all he means as he speaks these truths to Martha here. He's not pointing to something that's just in the distant. He's pointing to an immediate reality, an immediate victory that is soon to come. She doesn't at this time understand what he's saying, but she soon will. She has some vague understanding of the future, that in the end God is on his throne. There will be a day that the final good is seen, and this definitely helps her. But I want you to hear me. Jesus has even more for her to glean from that which he is promising and that which he is saying. She can see things off of far away, but what about up close? I don't know when it happened, guys. Sometime in the last few years, there's a reason why I have to wear these things now. I used to not. And I remember reading my Bible in the morning, going through the Guthrie plan, and I started here like I normally do, and it kept having to be pushed further. And I'm like, what is going on? I'd wipe my eyes, it wouldn't help. And I said, Allie, I... I I guess I got to go get glasses. And that was about three years ago. Can I tell you now, it's not getting any better. (laughs) Now I used to think it was a bit fuzzy. Now it is almost impossible to see that which is right in front of me. It's because they're so true of me that I'm suffering from this awful situation of getting older, right? But I'm suffering from the awful situation that I am nearsighted. Or far-sighted. I get confused. Which is it? Near-sighted. 
I'm farsighted. you got to help me here. I, I can't even tell you what I am. But what it is is this. I can still see plenty far enough in the back. I can see right in the back what Wayne is doing and everything that he's doing back there sitting next to his beloved wife, Cindy White. I can still see them with absolute clarity. But right in front of my face, I can't see hardly anything. Can I tell you that this is the condition that Martha is suffering from in this moment? She knows in the last day her brother will be raised. Can't even bring herself to see what she's missing right in front of her. And so what Jesus effectively does is he puts on the spiritual glasses for her to see the victory that is coming that will be experienced even in the immediate future. But can I tell you that that isn't even all that he's doing there. He's not just refocusing her from what is far off and in the future to what is immediate and more in the now. He's doing even more than that. He's trying to focus her not just on the circumstance, not just on the situation of death, She's trying to be refocused. She needs to be refocused on him. What she needs most is him. I love the way that A.W. Pink explains it this way. It's not future events, but the person of the Lord ever present with us that we need most to be occupied with. So when we're suffering, we know that there's ultimate victory. That the pain will end. We know that we need to see things even more immediate at times. That we can be so guilty of not having the faith to trust in God showing us what we need right in front of us. But more than anything else, church, in those times of suffering, we just need Christ. We just need him. And Martha is being encouraged by Jesus to see how much she needs him. And he is the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Two complementary things that are different, but they work together. Resurrection refers to the final resurrection that Martha spoke of, a resurrection of the last day. It's the resurrection that Paul speaks of when he promises in 2 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. But Christ also offers us in the immediate, in relationship with him, life. Eternal life, kingdom life, not just existing, but life as he intends for us to live. And he tells us even earlier, John 8, 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. That there is a promise, that it is very sure, that there is a sense that a believer in Christ never dies. That if Mary would know Jesus and trust in Jesus, she has life now that the suffering cannot take that from her. In Christ, he gives life, kingdom life, saving life, and that is a life that will never end. So when you are resurrected, it speaks of what happens when you receive the new birth and an internal transformation and change happens in you. And then Jesus not only resurrects you, but he gives you life so that you're able to live then from every day forward for the pleasure of the glory of God. So do you believe in the face of your suffering? He's looking at Martha and he says, Martha, do you believe? And I love her answer, yes, Lord, I do. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you're the Son of God. I'm totally confident in these things. 
Jesus knew that Mary needed him too. So he calls for her. And he sends for Martha to go and to get her and to retrieve her. The text tells us he hasn't even made his way into the village. Those with Mary assume the wrong thing. She thinks that when Mary gets up to leave, she's going to her brother's tomb so she can weep and mourn there. If you're wondering, what is the takeaway from that text? There's a very clear takeaway from that passage. It's yet another reminder that when we think we are interpreting a situation correctly, oftentimes in our human frailty, we're not seeing it like we should. These around Mary think they know. They don't know. She's not going to mourn. She's going to hear from Jesus. And so many times we can be guilty of reaching the wrong conclusions. We need to withhold our judgments in a situation and wait for the fuller picture to be made clear before we make the determination of what's in front of us. And so it is here. When Mary goes to Jesus. And when she goes to Jesus, she does what she has already shown herself to do. She just sits at his feet. She falls down before him, repeating the same thing that Martha has already said. If you had just been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. And then overcome with emotion, she just weeps. And when Jesus is there with the woman who it's already been said is the one who not long after will wipe his feet with the Wonderful, priceless ointment of nard. A picture of worship preparing him for his burial as he looks down at the one who is just weeping at his feet. He does the only rightful thing in that moment. He weeps too. Shortest verse of all the Bible. And Jesus wept. And when we love others well, can I just tell you that this is about the best thing for us to do in these moments. We need to combat suffering with the truth. That's where this text starts. But let's always remember, people are people when they're hurting. And if we're going to follow Jesus' instructions, then we've got to combat suffering with tears. Join them in what they're crying over. Mary's words, just like Martha's, reveal her confidence in Jesus' power to heal. But after Jesus heard this, not just from Martha, but also from Mary, can't you help? You can't help but just feel just a hint of reproof. Just in the repeat of the expression. Mary's not trying to be too forward, but on some level, she's simply saying very carefully, where were you, Lord? Where were you when my loved one died? Where were you when that truck was barreling toward my friends when they were leaving the funeral? Where were you when I was overlooked? For the promotion that I thought I was going to receive? Where were you when 
my parents got a divorce? Where were you when I was being abused, as was Emily's story, over and over again? And when Jesus hears from Mary, notice his answer. Same thing he did basically with Martha. He doesn't correct them. He just listens. He just cares for her. He pushes past any need to explain why he was not in Bethany when Lazarus died. He does not defend his actions or his calendar. He just weeps. He weeps with her, along with those who are also with her weeping. Well, Dana Ortland's gentle and lowly uses this text as an explanation to help us understand the emotions that are in the heart of Christ. He cites an essay written by the great theologian B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian who lived back in the 19th and the 20th century. And in that essay about Jesus' emotions, he explains clearly that Jesus' emotions are not like our emotions, that we talk about him being emotional we think about emotional as being someone who is unbalanced or who is overcome with emotions. They just can't think. But that was not true of Jesus. He was not reactionary. Jesus had emotions that flowed from the deepness, depth of his heart. He did not suppress them in an unhealthy way. He never exaggerated them. He expressed them perfectly. And that's what makes Jesus different from us. Warfield says the emotion that we Expect to find from Christ here, we do find. It is abundantly present in this text. As he's there with Martha and Mary, you see his compassion. But then Ortland goes on to explain, though, that what we not need to ever forget is that the fall has ruined us, every part of us, including our emotions. Really try to bring to light what he's trying to say. I remember going on a mission trip in the country of Cambodia and seeing kid after kid at the side of the road just begging for something. Some coin to be tossed their way to get something to eat. I remember seeing people who were of immense suffering with no hope of having any health care help them in their handicap on the side of the road begging. When you think about the heartbreaking things that you might experience, the homelessness that we see every time we pull up at an intersection around here, the ways that we see a precious woman who is often walking up the streets and down the streets of Smyrna pushing her shopping cart filled with all of her belongings, unwilling to give them up, though hope is there for her as she'll just simply give up the need to hold on to her possessions if we try to encourage her over and over again. You, you see all of that, and it breaks your heart, but here's what we have to at least acknowledge in our callousness of it all. Sometimes it's not that we're sinfully overreacting in our emotions, it's that we are sinfully underreacting in them. They're not moving us to respond in the way that Christ would in those moments. See, sin restrains our compassion because it restrains our emotions 
to the effects of that sin and the ruin that it brings into people's lives. Imagine what would happen if we would walk so in the Spirit that we would release in our lives an unrestrained, proper emotional response to compassion when we see the need. So you combat suffering with all of these things. You combat it with truth. You combat it with our tears. You combat suffering with anger. I'm going to quickly go through the rest of this text. The other thing you see in this passage is righteous anger. It's what you read about in verse 33. You might not see it explicitly, but it's what it is in the original language. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, the Bible says he was deeply moved. That that is translated deeply moved in the Greek is a Greek word which is embrimeomai. It refers to the snorting of horses. When it's used of humans, it describes emotional indignation. Not just sadness. It's anger. And that is the emotion that rose in Jesus' heart when he wove and he fastened together a whip to flip the tables of the money changers in the temple. That's what we have here on display. You think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, as Paul says, in your anger do not sin. It's not anger that, that, that is, it's not, we're not sinful when we have anger. It's what we do in that anger when we sin as a result of that anger that we get messed up on. But Jesus knew how to be angry rightfully, righteously anger, and he never sinned. But this is, Something that we need to understand from this text. And B.B. Warfield, he comments on that. as He uses this, verse 33, to explain what this is. What embrimeomai truly means. What kind of indignation Jesus is feeling. And this is what he says. It is inextinguishable fury that seizes upon Jesus. He's angry at death in this moment that is the object of his wrath, he's angry that behind that death is the one who holds the power of death, who he has now come into the world to destroy. And tears of empathy, they do fill his eyes, but at the same time, his soul is held with rage. So what John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Christ as he wins for us our salvation. So what we see here is that Christ hates with righteous hatred that which is plaguing Mary and Martha. And when we relate it to our lives, he does the same for us. He hates those things that are plaguing you that are a result of the fallenness of sin. And his anger isn't sinful. And our anger should not be sinful. We shouldn't deny it either. Is the only proper response to the injustices of a fallen world. And all of this points us to know how to be directed in the Spirit, to understand what it means that God does love the sinner. He loves the world that he died for, but he hates sin. He hates the death that sin brings. He hates Satan, the one who wields the power of sin and holds people under its sway. In church, so must we. 
But isn't it true what he said earlier can often be the case of how we respond to this emotion? It's not that we uh, overreact, but it's that we underreact. We just get callous. That's what it brings. So let's try to learn from Jesus how to combat suffering. Truth, how do you combat it with tears? How do you combat it with anger? And always remember that the only thing that matters is that we seek the approval of God. That's how it ends. After we find Jesus weeping, the Jews say, see how he loved him. But some of them, they had mixed reviews. Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have also kept this man from dying? It's never about the applause that we receive from other people. The only thing we should care about is what God thinks. So the ultimate cause of human suffering is that we are separated from the God who made us. That may have been your position as you entered into this room, but my prayer for you is that that will not be your position as you leave. If you are angered by your present suffering, just know that Jesus has combated the cause of your suffering with the truth of the gospel. And won't you trust the one who is angered by your suffering, who hates that suffering that plagues you? He invites you to tell him how you feel about the causes of your suffering. He's not going to rebuke you for being honest with him, even if you go as far as honestly saying, if only you would have been here, Lord. Know that he comes to you. That he gives you truth and he weeps with you. But this isn't some kind of powerless sentimentality that brings that he brings with him to your aid. It's not just a nice warm hug or something that makes you feel better in the moment. I want you to hear this. With all the power of heaven, he comes against your suffering, overcoming it with the future power of resurrection and making sure you know what it is to live in the present with life, real life that only he can give. There's substance here. There's real victory here. This is a God worth believing in. So won't you believe in him right now? I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And as we enter into this time, I just pray that you will see the way that Jesus answers the problem of suffering. He brings to it truth that in Christ we have resurrection, in Christ we have life. You won't find it anywhere else. It's only found in him. He he brings tears. He weeps with you in it. He brings righteous indignation. He hates those things that plague you. And he's not concerned about anyone else's view of him other than the way that he is living his life before the gaze of the Father. And this is the power of Christ. Won't you believe in him? Won't you confess that he's Lord? Won't you believe that God raised him from the dead so that you can be saved and given resurrection life? He's the one that overcomes our suffering. I tell you, for all the rest of us here, please understand that the answer for human suffering, the answer to the hard things that we face, the times that you don't even want to get up in bed in in the morning, please hear me. Just run to Christ. 
just find your answer in him. Just know that in a relationship with Jesus, you don't have to just look off in the distance to heaven. You can have it in the immediate, in the here and now, as he's right in front of you. He is the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. So stop looking to other places. Find the answer to your suffering. Find it in relationship with him. Father, we love you. And I pray that everyone here today will leave this place being amazed and overwhelmed by the immense love that you have for us. Thank you for loving us, for weeping with us, for hating the things that plague us, and for showing yourself victorious over all sin and death, every reason for our suffering. You're offering to us the resurrection and the life that you, you give. If there's anyone here today that needs it, Father, may today be the day. In Jesus' name we pray.